Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Well, good morning. Um, welcome to Appamata's Sunday program. This fine first Sunday in June. My name's Todd Bankler, and I'm one of the entrusted teachers here. Uh, we just finished our two hours of meditation, so three 30-minute sitting periods with some walking meditation in between. We did a little bit of outdoor walking, which was nice this morning. Yeah. And we'd like to wrap up with doing a little bit of a, a talk about the Dharma, about the practice, taking a little food for thought in to help support us along the way and help us continue our Zen practice. Um, and I always find these interesting because I don't, I don't, I'm pretty sure that um, I can't solve anything for you guys. <laughs> I don't have any magic wands or any magic bullets. Uh, I also trust in this practice and that um, you will realize it for yourself. As long as you keep going, as long as you keep going down the Bodhisattva's way. So the talk here is just to help support you as you go along your way. And I'm just going to talk a few minutes and we'll try and leave some time for group discussion or any questions you have. So what I wanted to talk about today is relaxing the self. Relaxing the self. Zen doesn't hold back. There's no holding back in Zen. But how do you, if you operate from a place of self, how do you relax that self? How do you express your, your full expression of your nature? Well, I'm going to use the metaphor today of starting um, with the physical world and the physical body. I, I was, um, came up as a gymnast when I was younger, competitive gymnast, um, athlete in some other sports, and I have been doing yoga the last several years, and, and anyway, the reason I bring that up is that I have a lot of experience in dealing with the body, in dealing where it's, with where it's limited, and where, you, where it's stuck, where you can't relax, in finding that um, range of motion, more freedom in the physical body. And really it's the same thing in our Zen practice. So one of the things that um, I realized early on in the practice is I had this uh, realization that came, I think from gymnastics, which was that in gymnastics, you're taught that the body follows the head. You know, if you, um, you gain a bunch of momentum, you launch from the floor and you want to do a backflip with a full twist, the way you initiate a lot of that is by throwing your head back and looking to one side and you will begin to, your body will literally follow what the head's doing. What was interesting about Zen practice is, um, they do the same thing, but in the opposite. <laughs> we take the body and we limit it. We put it on a cushion in a particular ceremonial form with instructions that, okay, body, you're not to move. Don't wave, don't waffle, don't lean, don't move. <laughs> and it turns out that the head, the mind follows that input. Oh, with enough sitting the body still, the mind starts to get still. The mind starts to be upright and unwavering. So both are true. So how do we relax the self? How do we not hold back? 
How do we express our full expression of our nature? Well, you have to stretch your range of motion. So it's like relaxing a tense muscle, one that's been overworked, one that is now work hardened, um, that has stiffened up with years of use. The range of motion is not what it used to be. So in stretching, we learn to relax this muscle. But in order to relax it, first you have to know where it's clenched. First you have to know that you're holding back, that there's a limitation. You have to see. It has to be part of your awareness. In order to see it, you have to learn to be aware. So we put the body in, in stretching, we put the body in a position where, which exposes its limitation. You know, let's, let's take in a particular example. Let's say you try to bend over at the waist and touch your toes or touch the floor. And the back of your lower back and your hamstrings won't let you do that. You put the body in a position which exposes its limitation. You become quiet and aware and you feel. Where do I feel the tension? Where, where is the muscle that reaches its maximum elongation and, and becomes into tension and stuck that stops you from going any farther forward? We test that. We try to do it. We feel where we're stuck. And we try to feel all the feelings around it. Where am I attached on either side of that muscle? Is it to the hip? Is it to the middle of the vertebrae? Is it the back of my leg and my femur? Where do I feel the limitation? Understanding that it's not gonna move any further, we can play with this limitation, um, learning how it moves, learning when it comes up. So in stretching, we can lift up a little bit and go back down, turn right, turn left, feel where the limitation begins and ends. And that builds um, a neural network, you know, a wiring, what is the term for, like biofeedback, that's the term, I think, where you start to have an input and you understand in the mind and in the body when the, when the pain starts and when it stops. So now that we know when we're, where we're stuck, where we're limited, where we're clenched, How do we move? Well, first you have to have an aim or a direction or a vow. You have to have an intention. I want to be able to touch the floor for whatever reason. You have to have an aim. You have to be able to visualize what it would look like. Can you see your hands getting closer to the floor even though they're not moving? Do you believe it's possible? And then lastly, you have to know that you're the boss. You have to understand that although it looks like in our ordinary way of seeing the world, in our ordinary way of self, it looks like your muscle has reached its limitation and it cannot move further. But the reality is you're the boss. That muscle will relax if it gets the instruction from the boss. Change isn't going to come from some external input, someone sitting on your back or pushing you down. 
you're just going to resist that more. You don't want to tear a muscle. You don't want to do violence. You don't want to force something that can't happen on its own. But if you've ever done a stretching practice like this, there's this kind of magical moment where you tell your body to relax. You take deep breaths and you envision the muscle relaxing. You feel where it would relax. You visualize your hands going forward to the floor. If it relaxed, this would happen. This is what I want. And with enough awareness and a kind of mind-body connection, it will relax and let go. And little by little, over time, your hands will get closer to the floor. So, if you've ever had that experience, I'm just out of curiosity, you know, has anyone ever had the experience of stretching and, and being absolutely sure that that was the limit, that was the breaking point, waiting, watching, trying, you know, waiting a little further, and then all of a sudden you just move more? Anybody show of hands? Oh, okay, so people, I wanted to know if people have experienced this. So to relax this heart-mind, you have to know where it's clenched. You have to see. To see, you have to learn to be aware. You can't be limited by your ideas of self. And so, we take this upright, dignified posture. We start with the body, upright and mobile sitting, and we use the body to lead the heart-mind. We sit zazen, we see what's up. As Joker used to say, just seeing what's up, seeing what's going on. Here's a quote from Joko. Sitting is not about finding a happy, blissful state. The states may occur in sitting when we've really experienced our pain over and over so that finally there's just letting go. That surrender and opening into something fresh and new is the consequence of experiencing pain, not a consequence of finding a place where we can shut the pain out. So we limit our activity to the zazen, to just this moment, to express ourselves. From Suzuki Roshi, how to practice our practice without having any goal is to limit our activity or to be concentrated on what we are doing at that moment. Instead of having some particular object, we should limit our activity. If you limit your activity to the extent you can do it just now, in this moment, then you can express fully the universal nature. When you're wandering about, you cannot. You have no chance to express yourself. But when you're concentrated on some particular, when you limit yourself, when you limit your expression of the universal nature, then there we have the way to practice. This is our way. So when we practice Zazen, we limit our activity just to keep the right posture and be concentrated on sitting. This is how we express the universal nature or true nature. Then you become you. Yourself becomes Buddha. You yourself express Buddha nature or true nature or universal nature. So instead of having some object we worship, we limit, object of worship, we limit, we concentrate our activity on some activity which we tackle. So when you bow, you should just bow. When you sit, you have to sit. When you eat, you eat. If you do so, the universal nature is there. We call it samadhi. 
we say Ichigo Zanmai. Samadhi is concentration. Ichigo, one practice. So one practice Samadhi. So we begin in Zazen. We begin by limiting our activity, by limiting the number of players in that activity to just you yourself for the most part. In order to see, to begin to see where you're stuck, where you're constricted, where the heart mind is clenched. We give ourselves a container where we can start to explore. We can become aware, a focused awareness on that hard mind, on its feelings, on its thoughts. We learn how it moves. Joko was very fond of thought labeling. The practice of putting a small word, one or two word or phrase label on what we just became aware of. Oh, grocery planning. <laughs> and then go back to your breath or go back to your <clears throat> sitting. Oh, remembering. Go back to your breath, go back to your sitting. Put the label on. Oh, um, resistance. Oh, planning an argument. <laughs> and losing. <laughs> we put the thought level on, the thought label on, because that um, strengthens the awareness muscle. And you can't put a label on a thought unless you detach from it momentarily. You unblend from it momentarily. You stop planning the groceries momentarily and say, oh, I was planning the groceries. So it strengthens the ability to be the space for what's happening, but yet not be what's happening. And in that way, Joko also taught that our upsets in life, what upsets, upsets us, um, our wonderful mindfulness bell, calling your attention, signaling that there's a Dharma gate. Oh, a practice opportunity here. I wonder what's up. I wonder where, how I'm constricted. Where am I holding on and not letting go? So we become aware, we use this witnessing presence, thought labeling, to become, to become intimate with you yourself. This is Dogen's taking the backward step, turning the light inward to illuminate your world and understand it. We enter with curiosity and loving kindness. And this is how we see where we're stuck where we're constricted, where we're holding back. But it's a tough little nut to crack because we're using our normal human conceptual ways of interpreting, analyzing, and boxing things in, putting things in boxes in our world with the small mind. And that's a problem. As Joko says in Nothing Special, we can't use our little mind to correct the little mind. <laughs> it's a formidable problem. The very thing we are investigating is also our means or tool for investigating it. The distortion in how we think distorts our efforts to correct a distortion. This is where our spiritual friends and our teachers come in.
Choco again. There's only there's only one way out of this closed loop and to see ourselves clearly. We have to step outside the little mind and observe it. When we label a thought, we step back from it. We remove our identification. There's a world of difference in saying she's impossible, quote, and, quote, having the thought that she's impossible. The more we observe and understand small mind, the less we'll be caught by it. For many years, in early years, this is what practice is about. It's about strengthening the observer. This is where the thought labeling is so important. Joko again. What we get out of practice is being more awake, being more alive, knowing our own mischievous tendencies so well that we don't need to visit them on others. <laughs> as we sit, our no as our knowledge of ourselves and our lives increases, we get a choice about what we're going to do. We get to choose whether to sacrifice another person. One of my favorite quotes is from Ryushin Paul Haller. Awareness is the crucible where the alchemy happens. Awareness is the crucible. Crucible, you know, in metallurgy, is a container that can withstand the 5,000 degrees, that can hold the molten metal. Awareness is the crucible. And of course, alchemy, you know, the ancient belief in magic arts, something mysterious you don't understand that can turn dross into gold. Awareness is the crucible where the alchemy happens, where the transformation happens, where the self can be relaxed. And so we sit, we become acutely aware of our own tendencies, our own core beliefs, our own thought systems, our own preferences, attachment, avoidance. And knowing them, being more awake, we don't have to visit them on others. <laughs> We get a choice about what we're going to do. And here's where people get stuck. By not understanding who the boss is. By waiting for someone to jump on their back and push their hands to the floor. Which, by the way, someone tried that with you, you're immediately going to hit them and throw them off. It's not going to work. But you, you yourself are the boss. Once you know where you're clenched, you have a choice that didn't exist before. You can become aware on this position, focusing on its feelings which ends are each end attached to? Where does your range of motion stop? What sensations and pangs of pain appear <clears throat> as that position or belief position expands and contracts? So here we have Mahayana practice, having an aim or direction. This is the Bodhisattva's vow, 
It's not the floor. It's not your hands reaching the floor. It's freeing all beings. Visualizing what it would look like if you weren't stuck. Knowing that you're the boss. Understanding that your awareness has created a choice for you. Now that you're aware, oh, instead of a habitual response, what should I do next? Oh, I remember, I want to touch the floor. I want to relax the self. I want to liberate all beings. As Norman Fisher says, kind of pointing to this uh, lack of trust in who the boss is, he says, quote, changing the habit of avoiding difficulty to the habit of engaging it creatively may be the single most important factor for training the mind. Changing the habit of avoiding difficulty to the habit of engaging it creatively may be the single most important factor for training the mind. <coughs> ah, so we're stuck. We feel the pang of stuckness, of pain. It's our mindfulness bell signaling a Dharma gate is available. Become aware, engage the witnessing presence. Be very intimate with yourself, turning your light inward. And here's the key to letting go, to relaxing that self. Self-centered practice doesn't work. The practice about you, yourself, doesn't work. Here's Suzuki Roshi from February 71. A self-centered practice doesn't work. Laughs. So he laughed right after he said that. You know, if you try to attain enlightenment, or if you want to be some great Zen master, you cannot actually, you cannot be actually great Zen master. When you don't try to be so, you know, or before you try to do so, or before you practice our way, you're Buddha. But because of your limited practice, self-centered practice, even though you practice your way, you cannot have real practice. You will miss yourself. Lose yourself in small, self-centered practice. This is where our Mahayana practice comes in. To turn our vow, our intention, away from ourselves. to not be caught by our, our ideas of self. Suzuki Roshan often talked about the idea of self. Here's Suzuki Roshi again from December, 1970. Selflessness means, you know, to see things as it is. When we are not caught by the idea of self, we can see things as it is. And things as it is, is selflessness. So as things exist as they are, we also exist as we are. That is selflessness. It doesn't mean we do not exist. We exist, but we exist as we are. And to know, to realize, not to know or not to realize, but to have that kind of mood of life is our purpose of practice. 
So those are my musings on relaxing the idea of self and not holding back. I said a lot. I'm going to stop now and see <laughs> where you guys, what do you think of that? Do you have a problem <clears throat> relaxing the idea of self, finding that freedom and range of motion that's not just dictated by your karmic causes and conditions and habituated patterns? It's good to talk about them. I invite your questions and comments and musings. <clears throat> uh, if you're online, I think you can raise your hand, um, the virtual little hand gesture, if you like, or if no one's speaking, just speak up. And I'm wondering about the difference between Suzuki Roshi talking about doing one thing when you're eating, eat, and that, and when you're sitting, sit, and that is our practice. And I'm blending. When I'm thinking, I'm sitting here um, I, this morning while I was sitting, I was composing essays and um, I'm wondering about that. I mean, I'm wondering about the difference between wholeheartedly composing essays and wholeheartedly sitting. Does that make sense? I mean, is it, is it that just one is in my head and it's not physically happening, except in my, well, I don't know. I don't know, I was struck by that. The difference between unblending and not doing something completely, if that, so when you say unblending, you're pointing to engaging that witnessing presence, right? Right, and right. seeing what small mind is up to, right? And you're asking, how is that different than doing one thing? Right. Yeah. I mean, what happens to the witness when you're doing one thing? Maybe. Mm. The question's phrased as like an either or or difference, <laughs> but to me, you know, in the realm of big mind and doing one thing, Blending and unblending both happen. Mm. Mm. You may be doing the one blending thing. You may be doing the unblending thing. Mm. Mm. But um, it is pointing to just doing what you're doing in that moment. That's what he talks about. Limit your activity to what you're actually doing in that moment. All right, let me try and find the spot. Um, limit our activity, concentrate on what we're doing at that moment. Limit your activity to the extent you can do it just now. So he says, our way is to limit yourself to what you can do just now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's accept. <laughs> as opposed to our ideas of what I'm going to do later. Yeah. Then you're not doing what you're doing now, except you're planning for later now, which right, is still, which is, but is that what you're, is um, that what you're meaning to do in that moment? Is that your intention or did you just catch yourself doing it and the boss was gone? 
<laughs> and the boss wasn't like present. That was away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm so used to do thinking while I'm doing something else. Mm -hmm. I mean, washing the dishes and planning the dinner or, um, you know, I don't know, something I do over and over, like sitting, I maybe, um, I can kind of disengage and think instead of just sitting. Um, we have me on the phone when you're ready. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, um, I was just thinking, I loved how you um, married the <clears throat> gymnastics with the practice. And because that's something I found really powerful. I mean, I was always told as a child that I wasn't bendy and I can't do this and I can't do that. And then I found yoga as an adult. And it taught me that what I thought was impossible you know wasn't that actually I could stretch beyond what I thought I could and um and it's something about the practice something about the way we do zen practice it's just practice it's doing the same thing over and over again and then we become better at it we become more flexible at it like um Anne was saying about taking one thing and um making a cup of coffee you know making the perfect latte or a cup of coffee you know the more we do it the better we get at it you know but if we do it sloppily each time we're going to get really good at doing that and uh, so for me it's something about um how repetition and and doing the same thing over and over again um we get good at it and i've got a, there's a small excerpt out of paradise in plain sight that sprung to mind during your talk would you mind if i just read it Go ahead. And um, so, yeah, it's just when folks begin to practice, they can be set back by how hard it is. They might, they might have expected to be good at it. For certain, they expected something. But what they are good at is something else altogether. Why is it so hard to breathe? Because you've been practicing holding your breath. Why is it so hard to keep my eyes open? because you've been practicing falling asleep. Why is it so hard to be still? Because you've been practicing running amok. Why is it so hard to be quiet? Because you've been practicing talking to yourself. Why is it so hard to pay attention? Because you've been practicing inattention. Why is it so hard to relax? Because you've been practicing stress. Why is it so hard to trust? Because you've been practicing fear. Why is it so hard to have faith? Because you've been trying to know. Why is it so hard to feel good? Because you've been practicing feeling bad. Whatever you practice, you'll get very good at. You've been practicing these things forever. Take your own life as proof that practice works as long as you keep doing it. Just replace a handful practice with one that does no harm, and that it sprung to mind as you were as you were talking that all all this practice and everything is about just just sitting still in a room and doing nothing, and we'll get good at all at, at being still, you know, rather than all the things that we. I loved the quote you read right at the beginning, you know, practice being deaf and dumb. And as I was sitting, it was like I could, I was talking to myself and I was like, shh, <laughs> oh, no, no, you don't speak, you know, practice at being done, practice at nothing. And I could, and it really highlighted the amount of times I began to interrupt that silence and that quiet. And talk. I'm really good at interrupting myself and interrupting the silence. And, and I think, yeah, the more we sit, the better we get at just being with that one thing. That, that we're doing that writing the essay, you know, just writing the essay with everything else just just falling away. But yeah, continuous practice for sure. So yeah, that's thank you. Yeah, you learned through yoga 
that you actually had a larger range of motion, that it was available. And what you said was one of the reasons that you had never expanded that range of motion is you had the idea that you could not. Yeah. Right. This is what that is what Suzuki Roshi calls the idea of self. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Why are you not experiencing equanimity, compassion, sympathetic joy, loving kindness? Because you have the idea that you cannot. And until mm -hmm. you learn to relax, see that idea, what Joku calls the core belief that's blindly leading you, making it, bringing it into a conscious awareness so that you can learn to play with it, soften it, see if you can relax and stretch. Turns mm -hmm. out that you yourself is the, are the boss. Okay. If no one's told you that, you can't touch your toes. My identity is so strong, you know, it was so strong in me that I was just not a bendy person. Right. It instilled in me and I'd taken on that belief. So then it prevents you from even trying. I had and, a... Sorry. Go ahead, finish. Yeah, until a space opens up and somehow you think, oh, I'll just give it a go. Mm -hmm. And then it, the results were astounding. Yeah. It was astonishing, you know, and that's what led me to the practice. Like, if I can do this with my body, it is possible to change the mind. It is possible to change my thoughts. It is possible to change other areas of myself. It was that step that led to everything else because right. a, was shown a poss an impossible thing was a possibility. Right. Yeah. I had a, a friend tell me something about themselves the other day, not, not a practitioner at all. Um, you know, something like, oh, I can never go and do that. I'm not a people person, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. I just said, you know, chicken, egg, egg, chicken. <laughs> and they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, that statement you just said, that idea of self you have in your mind, it's self-fulfilling. Mm -hmm. I can never do that. I'm not a people person. Well, which came first, the not doing it or the thought? Mm. Not sure, but you're in a feedback loop right now where it's not going to change. Mm. Go ahead. Okay, so <clears throat> for about 10 years straight, every day I carried a camera. And what I realized was I was using this as a defense from actually participating. <clears throat> yeah. And so my, I'm feeling a little uneasiness with this idea of observing the self in the same way. And I, I keep asking myself, so if I'm, if I'm gonna be with you, would I rather be with you as yourself or are you as the one observing yourself? You know what I mean? Like there's, it seems a little inhibited, not fully participating this idea of going to that place, like spiritual bypassing a little bit. And I'm wondering how, you know, how you could helpfully, how you could be there and observe yourself being there at the same time. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Yeah, I think the, I think I just, you know, blew a circuit though, trying to figure out that. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't have any. It seems a little inhibited to walk into a room and not just fully participate. And, and I keep going back to this image I have of this wonderful man who used to take the fish off the boats and he would skin the fish and then throw them into the, the water and the seagulls would come and catch the thing. You've probably right. seen people like that. And he was completely into what he was, he wasn't observing himself doing that, you know, but he was really into it. And, and it's easy for me to be the observer, but to be the participant is much harder.
Yeah, what I was going to say was both ways are true. When you're just doing that one thing, when you're blended with it, it may be coming from joy, freedom, and liberation, and helping to save all beings, or it could just be the same old pattern you've always been reactively doing. And if you don't ever step out of it for a moment and look at it from both sides, there's never going to be an opportunity to choose something else. Yeah, the, when we, the phrase, uh, just wash your bowl, it's, it's not just watch yourself washing your bowl. Right. So, um, I guess what's harder for me is to just wash your bowl. Well, I, I'll just, I'm agreeing with Ken uh, that this is my issue, that I'm just saying, okay, I'm alert. Oh, I see what I'm about to do. Okay, what's the best decision? You know, and it's just, it's not at all relaxed. Mm. And maybe I'm just not advanced enough to <laughs> be able to relax in it. Yeah, it's tricky. Yeah, that's good. Um, Joel's going to solve the problem. Oh, good. <laughs> Try it, Joel. Oh, Kim. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to say I'm I'm uh, I have the privilege of leading the precepts class this afternoon, which is focused on the precept. Uh, I take up the way of cultivating a clear mind, and I have gone down. 50 different rabbit holes like Kim is pointing to right now. It's like, well, what does it mean to be, uh, to have a clear mind in any given moment? And I, I think that, that the, the key is, um, for myself, uh, that the key is self-compassion and equanimity and just knowing that, you know, my mind is going in many different directions at one time. You know, you may think that the guy who was skinning the, or, you know, processing the fish in whatever way he was doing it was uh, very single minded. You may think that, but you have no idea. He may have been mad at his sister. He may have been uh, having sexual thoughts. He may have uh, been thinking about what he was going to have for lunch later. Uh, and, um, just because he was being very efficient in his motions, that's not that's actually not a window on what was going on inside. But that that uh, in terms of our own process of moving forward, I love just the way that that Todd was was uh, describing this. It was <laughs> this is so perfect. I'm going to incorporate a lot of it into what I'm going to say this afternoon, Todd. But you know that you you notice that you have a stuck place and. Uh, you remember that you have a choice in that. And, and as Todd says, that you're the boss, that you're, you know, the person who told you that you will always be stuck is not the boss. Actually, you can explore some possibilities and you can see you do that by a, a gentle, self-compassionate exploration of, of where it hurts, where the attachment is, where are things that you can work with that can loosen that attachment. And, um, and that, that is a way to move forward, a, a way to get a greater, literally a greater range of motion. So uh, I, anyway, I love that, but, but I, I don't know. I wanted to make one more point and now it's jumped out of my head. So my mind is not, uh, is not focused enough to even hold <clears> on <throat> to a few minutes, but uh, this, is the, this, is, this is the great matter. You know, the gray matter and the great matter. <laughs> it's how we choose to be uh, in loving kindness and compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity in any given moment. And uh, I, I just love the metaphor that you that you constructed for this time. Thank you so much. 
I forgot to make one a key point, and that is if you, if you want to do this, to find that range of motion without tearing a muscle and hurting yourself, like you said, gentleness, you have to have a way to do it. You have to have a practice container to do it. You have to um, make sure there's no one pushing down on your back that you because you will just resist that. Right? Someone can't force you to let go. You have to understand that the letting go is your own doing. And one of the tricks that I have learned over the years to increase my physical range of motion, especially on very stuck muscles, is when they stop moving, when I've increased as much as I think I can, and there's so much tension, it just feels like my muscles going to tear or split. I take all the pressure off, zero force. Like if you were pulling against the wall, I would let go of all of my fingers until I just had my tip of my fingertip on the wall and I can feel that it's only a gram of pressure there. And now my brain goes, oh, it's safe. I can't tear the muscle because there's no force. There's no pull. The only way it's going to move is if I let go. And every time it will go farther with no mm -hmm. force. And and I have my finger on that wall. I can feel that I am not pulling on that wall at all. And then it moves. It's because there's a trust there. There's an understanding that no one's going to pull me. No one's going to tear. It's not going to break my back. And so this is our container to sit in a safe space, bounded by the precepts where harm won't be done. It's safe to relax. So with that, we are out of time. So I apologize if any more questions, but gotta let people get on with their day. So thank you so much for participating.